In 2014, Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond was fatally shot by David Martinez during a raid on the Martinez family home. According to law enforcement, the act was murder. According to Martinez, it was self-defense. From Crime Story Media and E1 Entertainment, this is Night Raid. I'm your host, Molly Miller, and this week we are unpacking why the raid happened in the first place, including David's affiliation with the Mongols Motorcycle Club and revealing contents of the search warrant for the Martinez residence. And we'll do all that using interviews, testimony reenactments, and jailhouse and police recordings. You're the affiant on the warrant. You're the lead I.O., and it was for seven locations. Why, why was Pomona PD doing that location? Is that just spinning the roulette wheel? Stick around for the third installment of Night Raid after this. If David Martinez fatally shot Officer Sean Diamond from a few feet away, then where does that leave us? How do we understand the context of that bullet? How can we see what happened in those moments in the dark? We have to go back to the beginning. In the simplest terms, this case now boils down to one question. Why did David pull the trigger? Brady Sullivan would eventually argue in court that it was self-defense, that David didn't see the officers and that he didn't hear them announce themselves, that he shot an unknown intruder in an attempt to protect his family. But according to the prosecution, David fired his shotgun at a police officer on purpose because he was an outlaw, a criminal, and a member of the Mongols' motorcycle gang. We're the ones your mom said to watch out for. We're the ones that you have to hide your daughters from. Everybody's going to want to be an outlaw biker. Labeled by authorities as the most vicious outlaw biker gang in the country. They are the Mongols, and they're like no other gang. That was the introduction to a History Channel documentary on the Mongols Motorcycle Club. Look up just about any TV special on the Mongols and you'll find a similar intro. Engines revving, shots of Harleys lined up outside some rowdy bar, tables full of guns, and mobs of Hulk-like bikers in leather vests. Watching these specials is like snorting a line of pure, unfiltered testosterone. It's intense. In real life, the Mongols are surrounded by a lot of drama. The club originated in 1969 when a group of Latinx Vietnam veterans was allegedly turned away by the Hells Angels due to their race. In the years that followed, the Mongols and the Hells Angels continued to clash in bloody brawls, stabbings, and shootings, leaving fatalities on both sides. 
The Hells Angels and the Mongols are locked in a battle to the death. Following new developments in a deadly gas station shooting in Riverside, an arrest and new evidence that police have now connected to a decades-long biker gang war. This 2002 brawl among rival gangs left three dead. The fight, captured on casino surveillance cameras, may be most shocking. It was in the middle of Harris Casino in Laughlin, Nevada, after members of rival gangs, Hells Angels and Mongols, tried to use the same entrance. As a result of the violence, the Mongols are under constant investigation by law enforcement. According to the ATF, the Mongols are a criminal organization, one that has a long history in the illegal drug trade, money laundering, robbery, firearms violations, assault, and homicide. Representatives from the Mongols Motorcycle Club say the feds have it all wrong. The Mongols say that the club has cleaned up its act in the past decade, and that they are now a social club that doesn't permit criminals among its ranks. So who are the Mongols? A club or a gang? How did David get involved with them? And just how deep was David inside this alleged criminal organization? Today, we're going to rewind the clock to just before the beginning, before the SWAT raid or Officer Diamond's death. We're going back to when David became a Mongol. I'm Molly Miller, and this is Night Raid. I wanted to understand the relationship between law enforcement and the Mongols, so I drove to the National Gang Violence Conference in Anaheim, California. The conference was held at a Marriott, open lobby, Starbucks in the front, families with Mickey Mouse t-shirts filed in and out. The hotel was nine minutes away from Disneyland. But beyond the lobby, there was security. I couldn't get into the conference room without an escort. The secretary of the California Gang Investigators Association walked me inside. She explained that part of the reason for the precautions was that members of the Mongols Motorcycle Club had shown up a few days earlier. They eventually left without an altercation, but still, the staff was being careful. I took an empty seat in the conference room, filled with hundreds of officers in plain clothes, mostly men, maybe 20 women. The majority were hunched over pads of paper, scribbling down notes. The speaker was Sergeant Justin Chevalier, a gang expert from the Orange County Sheriff's Department. The topic? Outlaw motorcycle gangs. Okay, does anyone know who a rival of the Mongols is? Okay, good. The Hells Angels, right? After the conference, I sat down with Sergeant Justin Chevalier in the green room to talk about outlaw motorcycle gangs. Sergeant Chevalier is extremely polite, but he's also intense. He's got a muscular frame and a commanding presence. As law enforcement, are you intimidated at all by outlaw motorcycle gangs? Speaking for myself, I'm not intimidated by anyone except for maybe my dad and God. So what's your response when people say that motorcycle gangs aren't really gangs? They're just social clubs. So there is a difference. Um, not everyone that rides a motorcycle is a a gang member per se, 
but specifically when it comes to outlaw motorcycle gang members, the one percenters that, that feel like they don't have to abide by anybody's rules. Uh, they feel like they're outlaws. Those are more the guys that are the, the gang members, the ones that are going to commit those crimes, the ones that are going to not always, but sometimes do stuff on behalf of, the, of those clubs. And we call them like one percenters or you know, outlaw motorcycle gang members. So are the Mongols one percenters? Outlaw? Yes, they are. They claim that themselves. So what are some of these violent crimes specifically? Sure. It's uh, some of the violent crimes that they participate in are homicide, attempted homicide, um, weapons possessions, whether it's guns or knives, um, narcotic trafficking, uh, just to name a few. The Mongols' criminal activity has made them the target of both local and federal law enforcement. In 2008, agents from the ATF infiltrated the Mongols' ranks in a three-year undercover investigation known as Operation Black Rain. ABC 7, this is Eyewitness News in high definition. A sweeping raid on an outlaw motorcycle gang. Dozens of bikers arrested from Southern California to Ohio. The charges against them range from drug sales to murder. Hello, I'm Mark Brown. I'm Michelle Tuzzi. This is the result of a three-year undercover investigation in which federal agents infiltrated the Mongols' motorcycle gang. Then in 2015, the ATF got creative. This indictment does much more than simply disrupt a violent criminal organization. We believe it puts a stake in the heart of the Mongols. 61 members now under arrest from what the feds say is a gang 600 members strong across the country with roots in Montebello dating back to the 1970s. The federal racketeering indictment seeks the forfeiture of the trademarked Mongols name and tags the Mongols as a criminal enterprise guilty of murder, hate crimes, firearms violations and drug trafficking. They attempted to dismantle the Mongols by taking away their trademark logo that they wear as a patch on their leather vests. It's an image of Genghis Khan, shirtless, wearing sunglasses, wielding a sword, and riding a motorcycle. Their symbol is Genghis Khan on a motorcycle. Genghis Khan was notoriously known as being brutal, and I think that that is something that they really hold to their heart. They feel like they are the conquerors, they are above everyone else, and that Genghis Khan mindset to where everyone is supposed to bow to them. From the perspective of law enforcement, the Mongols are self-proclaimed outlaws. And although not all members are criminals, everything from the patches on their vests to their fight song to their general attitude towards officers shows a fundamental disrespect for the law. So how did a family man who worked in a management position at a pest control company fall in with these outlaws? In 2019, David testified in court under direct examination by public defender Brady Sullivan about how and why he joined the Mongols. Proceedings in the courtroom were not recorded, so all testimony in this program is portrayed by actors who are reading excerpts from the official transcript. Some excerpts are edited for clarity and time. Now, how did you end up joining the Mongols? What were the circumstances? Uh, I bought a motorcycle. What kind of motorcycle did you have? Uh, Harley-Davidson, Softail Deluxe. At some point after you got the motorcycle, how is it that you ended up becoming associated with people who are members of the Mongols? I visited a shop in Temple City where my brother was working. What is his name? Art Martinez. Go ahead. Uh, and I met this individual there. I was wearing a Terminex uniform, and he asked me if I was hiring, and at the time... 
I was managing the fumigation department for Terminex, so I gave him my business card. What was his name? His name was Tommy. David hired Tommy, and the two became fast friends. They hung out on weekends, went to barbecues together, and bonded over their love of motorcycles and the open road. But eventually, David discovered that Tommy was more than a motorcycle enthusiast. He was a member of the Mongols Motorcycle Club. Now, how is it that this resulted in your association with the Mongols? Uh, Because he invited me to a couple of events afterwards then. Now, did you continue to go to other events with Tommy? Yes, I did. Had you ever seen any evidence of Mongols engaging in illegal activity in your presence? Other than drinking and smoking pot or other medicinal partying in the bathroom? No. So basically alcohol and drug use, things like that. Right. All right. Party behavior? Right. And at some point, did Tommy or someone else invite you to join the Mongols? Uh, Yes, he did. Okay. And what was your decision? What did you decide to do? I, at first, was just told to think about it. At some point, did you make a different decision? Yes, I did. In 2011, Tommy had a severe seizure and died. The loss of his friend changed the way David thought about the Mongols. What did you decide? I decided to join because Tommy had passed away, and they asked me, and because I liked it too. Okay. What did you like about it? Camaraderie, the riding on bikes, the love that you perceive from the outside looking in. And when you refer to camaraderie, what do you mean? The brotherhood. Explain what that means. It means being there for the person you call brother through thick and thin. It means supporting and helping them out in a time of need. It means protecting them if necessary. In David's telling, the Mongols were a brotherhood, not a gang. Sure, there was partying and drug use, but nothing violent. His portrait of the club stands in stark contrast to the ATF's view of the Mongols as a dangerous criminal organization. To try to sort out this discrepancy, I reached out to one of the club's attorneys. My name is Stephen Stubbs. I am international counsel for the Mongols Motorcycle Club. I have to say, when I envisioned the general counsel for the Mongols Motorcycle Club, I imagined someone who looked like they rolled out of a smoke-filled bar, a little five o'clock shadow, maybe some faded tattoos. What I did not picture was Stephen Stubbs, He's a straight-laced Mormon, clean-shaven, with a penchant for dapper blazers and bow ties. But just because he's well-dressed doesn't mean that he's conventional. I have to ask you about your commercial. Which one? (laughs) Your commercial where you have the nunchucks. Which one? Steven Stubbs stands on top of a mountain in a suit and bow tie, wielding nunchucks with proficiency. There are lawyers. Then there is a champion for justice, attorney Stephen Stubbs. Stephen Stubbs fights for justice every day. Stephen Stubbs clients are like family. Stephen Stubbs ninja that can sing and dance. His enemies don't stand a chance. Stephen Stubbs. Stephen Stubbs. The commercial ends with Stephen shedding a single tear in front of a waving American flag. 
Stephen might have comedic flair, but when it comes to the Mongols, he's all business. In your opinion, is the Mongols MC a gang? Is it a criminal organization or either of those things? Well, the answer is no, it's not a gang and no, it's not a criminal organization. Um, So let's start in the 50s. Okay, in the 1950s, all the soldiers were coming back from World War II. And, you know, they were dealing with the post-war effects and they started getting together and riding motorcycles. And there was the American Motorcycle Association, which would put on these events and do all these things. And they tried to regulate and make rules about riding motorcycles. Number one rule is you had to wear a suit and tie to ride a motorcycle. And these guys weren't having it, right? (laughs) And they're just like, screw you. We're going to ride and do what we want to do, right? And so they were then deemed outlaws. And that is where outlaw comes from for an outlaw motorcycle club. It has nothing to do with crimes. And to be an outlaw biker is to be a biker that believes at your core that as long as you're not hurting anybody, the government should just stay the heck out of your life, right? That is what it means to be an outlaw biker. According to Stephen Stubbs, there may be criminals who happen to be Mongols, but that doesn't make the Mongols a criminal organization. In fact, one prominent Mongol went on to hold public office, and he still stands by the club. That's former governor of Minnesota and WWE wrestler Jesse Ventura. Here he is on the Howard Stern Show. But, uh, hey, governor, I just got done reading a book about a outlaw motorcycle president for the Mongols in California. He says in that book, at one time, you were a member of the Mongols Outlaw Motorcycle Club. Is that true? Uh, once a Mongol, always a Mongol, absolutely. You were a motorcycle gang guy? Yep. That's a tough, uh, that's tough business, right? Yeah, no, I, I did that. In fact, it was the last year I was in the Navy SEALs. I used to leave the base and put my collars on. I could see, I could see, but you, you probably had to uh, do a lot of hand-to-hand combat when you were in the gang, right? No, it's not a gang, it's a club. No, it's a club. It says MC, that's Motorcycle Club. But if the Mongols really were just a club, a brotherhood bonded by their love of motorcycles, then one question remained. Why was David scared of them? had shifted between Tommy's death in 2011 and David's incarceration in late 2014. David described the deterioration of his relationship with the Mongols to Brady Sullivan. Again, these are actors reading their words. At some point, did you start to have a change of attitude about your enthusiasm of being a Mongol? Yes, I did. Can you explain that? Well, Having to have the responsibility of having a job, of having to attend weekly meetings, of having to attend weekly runs, and then the extra activities the chapter required was time-consuming time and caused problems. What kinds of problems? Well, obviously, with my significant other. What happened with Sandra? Well, she didn't like me going out, having to be at strip clubs, having to go to bars. I'm not going to sit here and say at times I didn't enjoy being there. I did, but 
It got old really quick. After the 2014 SWAT operation, Sandra spoke with detectives about how she perceived the Mongols. Her words echo David's statements. What's the club scene? The Mongols. Okay. Is that a gang? No. As far as I know, they're not a gang. They're not. What are they? A motorcycle club. Motorcycle club. Brotherhood, supposedly. A brotherhood. Exactly. Do you know any of his friends from the Mongols? Um, I don't really associate with them. I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't like them. I don't like what they're about. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I mean what they're about, because when he has gone out before with them, all it is is just party, getting drunk. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like, you say you're a brotherhood, but you're partying. And I'm not okay with that. It seems that David was torn between the rowdy Mongol lifestyle and his responsibility as a father and partner. He was in his early 30s at the time and understandably tired of the parties. But he stayed a member of the club, paid his dues, went to chapter meetings. Then, in 2013, David had a serious motorcycle accident. The crash left him with hairline fractures on his spine, a compound fracture to his right leg, and compressed vertebrae. His injuries were so severe that David was unable to work. How did the motorcycle accident affect your feelings about being in the Mongols? Uh, I was hit from behind, and it was a hit and run. I just got tired of things, and it wasn't easy. After the accident, were you able to work? No, I wasn't. Was your financial situation more difficult? It was. Were you able to ride your motorcycle? Not while I was injured, no. The Mongols have a motto that you've got to love the patch more than your family. Is that true? I wouldn't say everybody says that or believes that, but there are some individuals with idealistic thoughts that believe that and believe others should believe that too. Did you ever have any problems with those people because you didn't adopt that mentality? Of course. And I would never adopt that mentality. Now, did you ever have any thoughts after the motorcycle accident about leaving the Mongols? I did. Can you explain that? Uh, Like I said, I was losing a lot and I was having problems. Things were getting easier. I was, my dues weren't getting paid. I was already, I think, a little bit over a thousand dollars in dues and I just felt like a burden. So why didn't you quit? It's easier said than done. Could you explain that? I didn't know what would be the outcome of it. It was around that time that David's friend, Jorge Luna, became aware that David was involved with the Mongols. Jorge later testified at David's trial. This is an actor portraying his testimony. What did David say to you about his changed attitude about the Mongols? He didn't enjoy it anymore. He wanted to get out. He said this was not the lifestyle for him. This is not what he joined for. It was hard getting information from him, but he finally admitted he didn't want to commit to certain things they wanted him to do. They expected him to carry drugs, weapons. That is not what he wanted to do. That is not the type of person he is. David never admitted to carrying drugs or weapons for the club, but agents that infiltrated the Mongols reported that prospects were expected to be armed and occasionally traffic illicit substances. Did David indicate to you that he wanted to quit the Mongols? Yes, he did. 
It was over breakfast. We sat down and he wouldn't have his back to the window or the door. He was very nervous and very scared. And he started talking and he told me he was petrified and scared for the life of his family and himself. And he just wanted to get out of this lifestyle. And he apologized for not listening to me the first time when I asked him to quit the Mongols. He said, if I try to leave, if I try to do something, they've been to my house. They know where I live. He has a little sister that's got special needs and he was afraid for her and his children and his mother. In Jorge's account, David feared retribution if he left the club. Some form of violence, not just against him, but possibly against his family. On October 13 of 2014, just 15 days before the SWAT raid on the Martinez home, the following text exchange took place between David and his common-law wife, Sandra. You're just not into it. And if anything, it needs to be understood. And they shouldn't make you be part of something that you don't want to be a part of. They are not making me. I'm forcing myself and I have finally come to my limit. Now I must prepare myself for whatever comes my way. They shouldn't bother you. Easy for you to say. You don't know these people like I do. They live off of this and they don't care about anything else. Their hearts are selfish and their minds are polluted with evil. You probably think that I'm over-exaggerating. When I'm lying in my coffin, then you'll understand the evilness of the people I have surrounded myself with. These people are full of pride and I have just walked and trampled all of it. I can only hope and keep my faith that no matter what happens, I will win in the end. David told Sandra that he wanted to quit the Mongols. And he told his friend Jorge that he wanted to quit the Mongols. But David never quit the Mongols. It's possible that he didn't leave the club because he was afraid of retaliation. But it's also possible that his statements about wanting to quit were all disingenuous. That he never actually intended to leave the club. But here's what we know for certain. In the days before David shot Officer Diamond, David attended a Mongols barbecue. And the Montebello PD had probable cause to send a SWAT team to search the Martinez home. So what was that probable cause? What was the SWAT team looking for? Which brings us back to high school, maybe middle school. Lockers, pencil pouches, three-pound textbooks. Remember when you learned about the Bill of Rights, those initial 10 amendments to the Constitution? You probably recall the first and the second, freedom of speech, right to bear arms, respectively. But with David Martinez's case, I keep thinking about the Fourth Amendment. Here's a refresher. The Fourth Amendment provides, quote, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures, end quote. And it continues that this right, quote, shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, end quote. So if that's the law, one might ask, how is it that in the United States, SWAT teams break into civilian homes more than 100 times per day. Up until this point, our narrative has focused on David Martinez. But this case didn't take place in a vacuum. It's time for us to address the larger social context, the one we see debated on the news 
printed on headlines and pasted into our social media feed. We need to talk about SWAT raids. In the United States during the 1980s, there were approximately 3,000 SWAT raids per year. By 2020, there were approximately 60,000. And casualties tied to police raids have increased as the number of operations has grown. A New York Times investigation found that between 2010 and 2016, at least 81 civilians and 13 officers died during SWAT raids, and scores of others were left maimed or wounded. Recently, public outcry and protests over cases like Breonna Taylor's has led to legislative reform, specifically over the use of no-knock warrants. But SWAT reform remains highly controversial. There are still many law enforcement agencies that believe SWAT raids are an essential part of policing. David Martinez's story contains parallels to many other SWAT operations with tragic endings. So let's start today by answering a very basic question. Why did a SWAT team raid David Martinez's home? Right now, I'm not talking about why David was a suspect or how authorities were able to obtain a search warrant. We'll get to that later in the episode. I want to focus on why the police sent a SWAT team with an armored Bearcat and operatives with a ram and a punch pull and military-grade firearms to David's home. How exactly did the United States get to a point where the police regularly use military tactics on civilians? How did we get here? You know, I think part of it is the sort of increasing militaristic rhetoric that we we saw from politicians throughout the 80s and 90s when it comes to the drug war. There's the general increased militarization of police. That's Radley Balco, author of Rise of the Warrior Cop. He's an award-winning journalist, a former columnist for The Washington Post, and one of the world's leading experts on police militarization. When you, we talk about militarization of police, I think there's two, two sides to it. There's the gear, right? There's the guns and the tanks and all the stuff they get from the Pentagon and now from DHS and other sources. But then there's also the mindset, the idea that we're soldiers or that it's us versus them, that, you know, you're not serving and protecting the public, you're fighting a war or you're on enemy turf. And the two play off each other. You know, if you dress a cop in camouflage and give him a soldier's gun and train him like a soldier and tell him he's fighting a war, he's going to start to see himself as a soldier. If that's how officers see themselves, then how might civilians see those officers? When Guadalupe Martinez was interviewed by detectives, this is how she described the men at her door. Well, as soon as the explosion happens, yes. a police officer falls. Yes. Okay. yes. And, uh, and But you can see he's a police officer. Yeah, the soldier, the soldier. So, okay. Sorry, I confused soldiers and the police. Yeah, is it police or soldier? What, no, you know what a soldier uh, uh, is, right? Soldiers. Guadalupe thought she saw soldiers. Not police. Soldiers. But I also think there's also kind of a, a cowboy mentality that's come into play in policing. If you look at YouTube videos, recruiting videos that police departments send to high schools and sometimes colleges, you know, I've criticized them publicly and they've taken a lot of them down, but you'll still find a lot of them. You know, the, the, they don't emphasize sort of service or helping people or sort of community service. You know, the videos are of cops repelling out of helicopters and tackling people and sicking dogs on people. And so there's this, you know, the very first stage of staffing police departments were recruiting people who are attracted to that, that 
aspect of policing and not the sort of community-oriented aspects of policing. There's also just some bureaucratic public choice theory in action here where you have a SWAT team, they're expensive, you might as well go ahead and use it. Um, the SWAT officers themselves, a lot of times the SWAT commander is the one who decides whether the SWAT team gets used, right? And the more you're used, the more prestige and clout you have within the department. In summary, police militarization is the result of the government giving domestic law enforcement military equipment. It's the soldier mentality that is ingrained into officers as early as recruitment. And it's the rationalization that SWAT teams are so expensive that they ought to be used even if they aren't necessary. If you zoom out far enough on David Martinez's case, you could say that this all really started in the 50s when outlaw motorcycle clubs formed after World War II. Zoom in a bit from there, and you might point to Operation Black Rain and the Mongols' contentious relationship with law enforcement. But legally, the SWAT raid on David's home started with a few pieces of paper, a search warrant authored by Detective Craig Adams. Boyish, with handsome features and a thin smile, Detective Adams was part of Montebello's gang unit in 2014, and he worked with the ATF on a task force investigating the Mongols' motorcycle club. Here's part of Detective Adams' interview with LASD Detective Mark Lilienfeld in the hours following the SWAT operation. Now, was Mr. Martinez obviously one of the intended targets of your search warrant? Yes. Oh, okay. And he is a Mongol street gang member? Or yes. motorcycle club member? Or, yes, exactly. He is. This was a multi-jurisdictional operation. Seven search warrants for Mongols' residences to be carried out simultaneously by seven different SWAT teams. All in the dead of night, on October 28, 2014, Craig Adams was from Montebello, PD, which didn't have its own SWAT team, so it partnered with neighboring departments to pull off the mission. That's how Pomona PD and Officer Sean Diamond ended up at David's door. But what was in that warrant that brought him there? What was the reason for the entire operation? And your underlying crimes for which you got the warrant issued are a shooting and an assault? Yeah. The, the main thing that kind of brought this uh, full circle was uh, an incident where the Mongols had assaulted um, a, a street bike, kind of a motorcycle club called Jeezer Tribe. And they assaulted some of their members at oh, a, the Jeezer Tribe, G-Z-E-R. They... Uh, they got in a fight with each other at, a, at a, um, a bar in Vernon. According to Craig Adams, this all started when two motorcycle gangs walked into a bar. It was August 29, 2014, a Friday night at La Via Basque Bar and Lounge in Vernon, California. One dance floor blasted top 40 hits while the other played salsa. The place was packed with about 200 people, including members of the Mongols, and a much smaller motorcycle club called the Jeezer Tribe. If you search for the Jeezer Tribe on YouTube, you'll find a bunch of videos of tattooed bikers burning rubber on high-performance sports bikes. Back in 2014, the Jeezers were known for their stunts, mostly wheelies, standing wheelies, one-leg wheelies, and front tire wheelies. But the fight didn't have anything to do with the stunts. 
David Martinez was at La Villa Basque that evening. He later testified about what he witnessed under direct examination by his public defender, Brady Sullivan. Did something happen in the bar that night between the Mongols and Jeezer tribe? Yes. What happened? A fight broke out in the bathroom because we wouldn't wait in line. The cause of the brawl that sparked a multi-jurisdictional SWAT operation? A Mongol cut in line for the bathroom. According to police reports, staff at the restaurant called 911, but by the time police arrived, the fight was over. The officers found a biker with a head injury in a storage room, but he refused to provide any personal information, and no one at the party would report that they had witnessed an assault. David testified that after the fight, he left the bar, got into his truck, and trailed the rest of the Mongols onto the freeway. And when you got on the 60 freeway, did something unusual happen? Uh, Yes. What happened? So we were on the 60 close to Atlantic or Downey Road. Somewhere in between those off-ramps, traffic started stopping. And as we got closer to, I believe, Atlantic, there was... I seen what appeared to be a fire to my right-hand side and an ambulance to my left. As we got closer on my right-hand side, there was a motorcycle down on fire. The owner of the burning bike was Sebastian Lopez, a friend of the Mongols, who was riding on the 60 freeway when he was shot four times. Sebastian Lopez survived the accident, but as a result of his injuries, he was paralyzed from the waist down. And Lopez wasn't the only biker shot that night. Several miles east of Lopez's crash on the 60 freeway, Mongols member Rafael Hernandez was also under fire. Hernandez was hit multiple times and barely managed to ride his bike off the freeway before collapsing in a parking lot outside of McDonald's. Hernandez survived and ultimately made a full recovery from his injuries. Neither Sebastian Lopez nor Rafael Hernandez identified their shooter to the police. But according to David Martinez's testimony, the Mongols knew who was responsible. Did you find out additional information about what had happened to that person on the motorcycle? I did. What did you find out? That a brother from the L.A. chapter, a member from the L.A. chapter and the hangaround were shot off their bikes from an individual on a sports bike. Did you have any information that led you to believe that the person who did the shooting was from Jeezer Tribe? It couldn't have been anyone else. The 60 Freeway shooting case was eventually turned over to an outlaw motorcycle gang task force that was investigating the Mongols. The task force that included Detective Craig Adams. It was their investigation of the highway shooting that ultimately resulted in the SWAT raid on David Martinez's home. So how did the freeway shooting, an incident in which the Mongols themselves were the victims, turn into probable cause for raids on the Mongols themselves. Two words. Confidential informants. The day after the SWAT operation, Detective Adams was interviewed by LASD detectives who were called in to investigate the shooting of Sean Diamond. During his interview, Detective Adams alluded to the information provided by confidential informants. The following is a recording of that interview. Detective Mark Lilienfeld is the officer asking the questions. In your warrant, what were you looking for at Mr. Martinez's house? Um, any kind of firearms. Uh, we had intelligence that some members of the uh, Mongols, Montebello chapter that he's a part of, were 
stockpiling weapons to right. retaliate against other rival right. motorcycle gangs. Okay. And by intelligence, you mean probable cause? That's exactly right. Okay. The SWAT team at David's house was looking for firearms, not just one or two, but a stockpile to retaliate against the Jeezer tribe. To understand David's involvement in the Mongols' alleged stockpiling of weapons, we need to dig into the search warrant itself. Craig Adams' warrant was signed by Judge Moral Injijikian, a Los Angeles criminal court judge who formally retired in 2011 but was working on temporary assignment in 2014, helping the Superior Court with its caseload. It was Judge Injijikian's job to determine whether or not Detective Adams had probable cause for the searches of the seven Mongol residences. Judge Njijikian did not respond to our inquiries regarding this case, so I reached out to former California Superior Court Judge Bill Sterling to explain how a California judge determines whether there is sufficient probable cause to justify signing a search warrant. Probable cause, the question is, would a reasonably prudent person entertain a strong suspicion that there is either evidence of a crime or contraband, you know, at the location to be searched. That's what probable cause is. Simply stated, probable cause means that a reasonable person would have a strong suspicion that there is evidence of a crime at the location being searched. With that in mind, let's review the warrant that Judge Injijikian signed. The following is part of what Craig Adams wrote in his affidavit, read by an actor and edited for time and to protect the identity of informants. An informant told detectives that approximately two weeks after the shooting, his or her relative was at the residence of Luis Garcia, a.k.a. Catfish, from the Mongols' OMG. Catfish was the Mongol who rode in David's truck the night of the 60 Highway shooting. He was one of the Mongols who David spoke with when he was detained at the Montebello jail. While in the garage, CRI number one's relative observed a multitude of firearms that were displayed on a couch. CRI number one said he or she saw approximately 10 firearms that do include rifles and handguns. CRI number one told us that his or her relative told him or her, Garcia said, the firearms were being kept in preparation for a retaliatory attack against members of the Jeezer tribe for the shootings on the 60 freeway. This information is the foundation of the probable cause. It ties the brawl at La Via Basque to the Highway 60 shooting to the notion of Mongols preparing for retaliation. But there are a few things worth noting about the anecdote. First, the garage where the firearms were allegedly observed was not at David Martinez's house. The Martinez's live in San Gabriel, and this home, the residence belonging to Catfish, was in Montebello, roughly a 25-minute drive away. Second, David Martinez was not in the garage during the incident described in the warrant. Third, the information in the warrant about the garage and the firearms doesn't come directly from the confidential, reliable informant. It was told to them secondhand by a relative. And finally, the incident witnessed by the CI's relative allegedly occurred in early September of 2014, roughly a month and a half prior to the execution of Craig Adams' SWAT raids. On its own, the anecdote about the guns at Catfish's house does little to implicate David Martinez. But the affidavit continues. 
it provides more probable cause for each of the individual targets of the raid. Here's what it says about David Martinez. At another function at the Garden Barn, which Mongols OMG members David Martinez, a.k.a. Bumps, and another member were present. During this function, CRI number two had seen Martinez in possession of a handgun, which he had tucked in his front waistband. And then there's one final piece of information. On August 10th, 2013, a member of the Mongols OMG, Raul Carrera, was stabbed at the Quiet Cannon Club in the city of Montebello. On August 13th, 2013, Detective Rodriguez drove to the Los Angeles County Medical Center in an attempt to speak with the victim. While at the hospital, Detective Rodriguez contacted Martinez at the hospital, who stated he was visiting Carrera. Martinez identified himself as a Patched Mongols member. So why was the Martinez home, a residence containing two young children, an elderly couple, and a woman with Down syndrome, the target of a 4 a.m. militarized SWAT raid? Number one, Detective Craig Adams received information from a confidential informant who heard from an unnamed relative who allegedly saw guns at a Mongols household and heard that the Mongols were planning to retaliate against the Jezer tribe. Number two, a confidential informant once allegedly saw David at a bar with a gun in his waistband. And number three, David Martinez visited a Mongol at the hospital, and he admitted to being a patched member. Prior to the raid, David had no felony convictions. His only run-ins with the law were for misdemeanor arrests. So what did Detective Craig Adams have to say about the purpose of the raid on the Martinez home? Here's what he told Detective Lilienfeld in the hours after Officer Diamond was shot. You're the affiant on the warrant. You're the lead I.O., and it was for seven locations. Why, why was Pomona PD doing that location? Is that just spinning the roulette wheel? Yeah, we uh, we had asked because obviously uh, the reliable information we had that they were gathering guns, right? In addition to high-powered rifles and things right. like that, um, we don't have obviously a SWAT team of Brown. We had all these locations, so right. we asked agencies that were on good terms with who had right. the obviously the ability and the and the equipment and everything right. to, to do that. And Pomona's worked with us in the past. In the past, okay. a lot with especially their narco crews, <clears throat> their narcotics unit, our narcotics unit mm-hmm. work weekly together. Okay. Um, so they're more than happy to help us out. Um, uh, and 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 that was it. So, Craig, out of these seven locations, and you're the lead dog. Why why were you at that location instead of any of the other six? Um, my supervisor was, well, he is a task force officer with ATF, uh-huh. Chris Cervantes, Sergeant Chris Cervantes, and he knew him well. Knew David Martinez well. He knew him, yeah. He right. knew him from prior contacts and from right. the, the prior uh, Black Rain, the Marco right. Rico case. Craig Adams means Operation Black Rain, not Black Ring. He clarified that later in his testimony. Now, while Adams' supervisor, Chris Cervantes, may have known David Martinez, It's impossible that he knew him from Operation Black Rain. That operation ended in October of 2008. David Martinez joined the Mongols in 2011. So why was Chris Cervantes so certain that David was a danger and worth pursuing? 
we honestly don't know. Um, and he said he's a problem. He's oh. a headache. And he wanted him, because I'm more familiar, obviously, with the case right. than other, the other detectives. Yeah. He wanted me to go to his house to make the point that this, this is why we're coming here. Um, because of the information we got yeah. and that sort of thing. And likewise, my partner went to another house, again, with another person who's kind of mm-hmm. higher up on the food chain with their, with their Montebello chapter, right. who we wanted to kind of, hey, you know, uh, same thing, kind of get the point across that, yeah. that, that what they're doing won't be kind of tolerated. According to Adams, they were there to get a point across. So the big question is, what did this multi-jurisdictional operation find? After searching seven homes, the investigators found a total of six guns, five of which were legally owned, including the shotgun that David Martinez fired. They also discovered small amounts of meth and marijuana. So yes, firearms, but there was no stockpile. It was either gone or it never existed in the first place. After the raids, four other Mongols were arrested, two for drug-related charges and two because they were felons in possession of ammunition. But ultimately, those arrests and all the evidence found at the Mongols' residences don't matter much to David's case. The validity of the warrant is not on trial for murder. What matters to David's case was what the investigators found in the Martinez home. After Officer Sean Diamond was shot, the Pomona PD searched the scene and the LASD Major Crimes Division was called in to execute the search warrant. Inside, they found one Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun, legally registered to David's common-law wife, Sandra Roman, one 357 Magnum revolver, again registered to Sandra, and then two pieces of evidence that would come back to haunt David at trial. So what was that evidence? How was it used in court? And how did the prosecution argue to the jury that David Martinez was guilty of first-degree murder? That's next time on Night Raid. You can find this entire Night Raid series wherever you get your podcasts. Night Raid is a production of Crime Story Media in partnership with E1 Entertainment. Our executive producer is Carrie Antholis. I'm Molly Miller, the host, producer, and writer of this episode. Associate producers are Brittany Bookbinder, Lexi Notabartolo, and Aaron Koronek. Audio editing by Chris Terracone. Rick Schnapp did our mix with additional audio editing by Tyler Newhouse. Music and sound design by Eldad Guetta, with Foley assistance by Elia Guetta, and scoring assistance by Nikki Hemmingson. Additional music by Half Gringa. Tonancina Sparza is our casting director. 
Voice actors in this episode were David Kelsey, Alex Alfaro, Luis Antonio Aldona, Tonantzin Esparza, and Andy Bulldog. Special thanks to Sam Dillon. Our title track is Alimony by Half Gringa. If you enjoyed this installment, don't forget to subscribe to Night Raid. Thanks for listening. <laughs>